There's a saying, and it's on your service sheet and the introduction part of the sermon outline. There is a saying, you may have heard it, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. I've heard it before. Uh, the thing is, no one knows where it came from. So no one knows exactly who coined it. We know that Welsh cricketers have used it as they've won their century and walked off the field and said, cometh the hour, cometh the man. They're talking about themselves. So it's laced with the pride, I guess. We know it's been a phrase used about Winston Churchill. It's a phrase used about the field of battle, uh, the arena of politics. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. It's a phrase that talks about when times are tough, when there is a crisis, that's when we need the person, the person who will come, who will be the hero when that hour comes. We are now at that hour. In John 17, Jesus, verse 1, says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come for Jesus. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen this, we've read, Jesus has been talking about this moment, this hour. It started back in John 2. He was at a wedding. I was at a wedding yesterday. I was conducting a wedding in a paddock. And if you know yesterday's weather, it was like 37 degrees and blowing a gale. So we had dust and heat. And, and, and yet weddings are beautiful things. They're celebrations. They're parties, aren't they? So the party continued on into the night. Jesus is at a wedding, at a party. And what is a crisis that happens at a wedding? It's not with 37 degrees. That, that's not a crisis at a wedding. It's welcome to Australia. It's March. What is a crisis at a wedding? Well, we have weddings outdoors. It's not that it's blowing a gale. What would be a crisis at a wedding? Jesus and John 2, his mother meets a crisis. They've run out of wine. And he goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? You'll remember from our series earlier in John. What does he say? Mom... He doesn't say not in front of my friends. He says, Mom, my hour has not yet come. This is not a major crisis. And he, by the way, he fixes it. If you don't know that what happens in that particular episode, he just gets some water and turns it into wine. It's his first miracle. But ever since then, Jesus has been saying, the hour is coming. It hasn't come yet. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. And now he says, as he lifts his eyes to heaven in front of his disciples and he prays, it's come. It's right now. Jesus has come to the moment which is the crisis of the cross. The hour has come. You get to know a person, what they're like, in crisis, don't you? Like, you can get to know me when I'm relaxed. But you get to know me, you, you hang around me and you see what I'm like in a crisis and then you see the real rust. It's not always pretty, is it? It's not always great and calm. Crisis produces, reveals the character in us. It reveals what our priorities are and what we do and what we focus on. There is nothing like a crisis that helps us to focus on what is important when our priorities is there. And Jesus now, facing the crisis of the cross, his focus is laser-like. And where is that laser directed? To God in prayer, to his Father in heaven. 
God the Son talks to God the Father in prayer. The crisis focuses his priorities. And here in John 17, we get to see Jesus' priorities. I mean, how would you know someone's priorities in life? We've talked about this before as a church. You can tell people's priorities by what they spend their money on. So what people think is important in life, they'll give their resources, their money, their time, talents and treasure to it. That that reveals what we think is important. You can tell what people think is important by how they speak about things, what lights them up, what they think is important or where the, 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 the change maker is in our world. But you can also tell for Christians, particularly for the church, you can tell someone's priorities by how they pray, what they think is important, what they'll bring before our Father in heaven. Yes, a car park space. If you need a car park space, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it's good to pray that you know, often my, my wife and kids get in the car and I just pray, just knowing not, you know, this happens every day on the news, that just they'll have a safe trip to the shops. That's important too. But look at Jesus' prayers because Jesus' prayer, his priorities in the moment that is the hour, what fills his prayers will and ought to fill our prayers. It should shape our prayers. What Jesus thinks is important should be something the church thinks is important. So let's have a look. Because as Jesus comes to pray, he prays, firstly, his priority is, for glory. Glory sometimes is a word that we use so easily in church circles, isn't it? Like it just kind of goes around. I mean, uh, I used to work with young adults in university ministry and a term came to use, that's glorious, out of a coffee, that's glorious. You know, they'd see a friend do some sort of fun thing with a soccer ball, that's glorious. It's like, it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's changed, I'm, I'm getting older, so I, I am not with it at all. I am not up to date. I've expired in my pop culture. Before that, when I was growing up, it was awesome. You know, God is awesome, but that's awesome. Like, that, you know, whatever it is, is awesome. Whereas the language we use has meaning, has loaded with things. When Jesus used the word glory, we see his prayer here. Notice what he says. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he said, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus, firstly, is praying for himself, but it's not a prayer that's egotistic or self-centered. He's praying for the glory of God. What is glory? We also talked about this before. Glory usually is a word attributed to kings and queens. It is a weight of worth of importance. So when someone walks into a room, when I walk into a room, there should be no glory. There should not be any sense of I'm important here. It's just, I'm just Russ. But if a king or a queen or someone of our world's measure of importance walked into the room, we go, oh, that's son. Like, that's. Uh, I'm trying to think of a famous person on the spot. I don't know. Um, someone famous. <laughs> we get it, right? So if we were to meet God, our first thought would not be, hey, that's cool. I'm meeting God. We're cool. Yeah, we're going to hang out. There'll be a sense of weight, of worth, of importance. We read in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, His glory fills things. It's so weighty. It's so heavy. 
God's glory is so big, his bigness can't be contained. It fills and overflows. It fills temples. It fills, it fills whole landscapes. His glory, when people, when prophets see the vision of God, it's like they're seeing the, 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 the bottom, the hem of his robe. His glory is enormous. And so now Jesus prays for that all the more. Notice what he's praying. Jesus is praying that his disciples, his church, would see Jesus in all his glory. They would see the glory of Christ. And what is the glory of Christ? Verse 3, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they would know who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do. This is God in flesh, John's Gospel. That Jesus has come in human form, To humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he has come. And now he prays, Father, glorify me in this moment. As Jesus prays to be glorified, he goes to a cross. Because what is the cross? The cross is where Jesus is lifted up, shown to the world, this is the glory of God in saving sinners. He's crowned king of kings on that cross. It's ironic, isn't it? It's not the way the world will crown someone. I think Prince Charles is going to be coronated, crowned. I think it's in May. I don't particularly, I mean, you know, I'm not a royal watcher. I think it's happening this year. I may watch it, you may watch it, you may not. But my guess is when Prince Charles is crowned, when he's coronated, when that happens, there's going to be a lot of gold. There's going to be a lot of maybe the silver. Even bronze, I don't know. There'll be gems, big robes, big trumpets, songs that people will sing half-heartedly because I don't really know the words and don't care. But anyway, lots of pomp and ceremony. How is this king glorified? He's lifted up on an instrument of humiliation and execution. This king dies for his subjects. That's how this king is glorified. And so he prays, glorify your son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And how is he glorified? Is on that cross. Here's a question for us as a church. Do we pray prayers like that? Do we pray that God would be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives? Do we pray that Jesus would be big in my life? That Jesus would fill the room of my life? That Jesus would fill every nook and crevice and every part? You know, often we live our lives like, Jesus, you can have Sunday, the Lord's Day. Well, it's really the Lord's hour, you know. Maybe I'll give it the Lord's morning. But you can have some of Sunday. You can have some of Sunday, Jesus, and then the rest I've got for my full work or whatever else I need to do. Maybe you can have a bit of Monday evening, Wednesday night. But that part of my life that I kind of don't show other people, you can't have that bit. I'm kind of holding on to that habitual sin. Well, this part of my life that no one else knows about, well, I like to play with that. Just to keep it... What you need to understand is Jesus is part of my life. No, 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 no. What we need to understand and see is he be glorified. Jesus be big in all of our life. Do we pray that he be glorified in every part of our life?
Because we can, friends. We can pray this prayer. That our prayer would be not about our egos or our opinions. Our ministry would not be about our agendas or our complaints or our criticisms. The biggest thing that would come from our lips is, God, be glorified. And as Jesus prays this, secondly, he prays for his apostles. That they may be sanctified and sent. I use the word there, intentionally apostles, because if you look in verses 6 to 19... And, and rightly so, we should be Bereans in the Bible, checking these things. What is Russ saying? Is this true? Have a look in verses 6 to 19, because he doesn't use the word apostles, but the word sent is used. And who is he praying for in verses 6 to 19? Because it's different to who he prays for in the last part of John 17. Particularly, you need to see this, he's praying for the 12. At this moment, there's 11, because Judas has already gone to do his thing. And Jesus prays, he says, I acknowledge, I've not lost one of them except the son of destruction, already gone. He'll be replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. But Jesus is particularly praying for the 12 disciples just now in this moment. As he prays for them, these 12, of course, become the apostles. And Jesus prays for them. And what does he pray? First, he prays that they would have joy. And notice how he prays, a joy that is not from themselves. Did you notice this? He says, have a look. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And notice it's a possessive adjective is my. So he's not praying that they get more joy in the things that they do that they find some joy in some hobbies, find some joy in perhaps just, you know, if, if, if they just uh, have a good life. No, no, Notice, Jesus says the source of their joy is going to be his joy fulfilled in them. Jesus wants to give them the kind of joy, so in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. These apostles are going into the world and they are going to endure their own cross. Every single one of them is executed except for John, who writes this. But John is exiled in the island of Patmos, where he writes Revelation. Every single one of them who sees Jesus on that cross ends up going to their own cross. Church history tells us Peter famously did not see himself worthy. Peter's like that, isn't he? He's a bit kind of like, he's an outspoken kind of guy. We like Peter. Peter says, I won't be crucified the right way up like Jesus. So he gets crucified upside down. And so Jesus prays for them that they would be able to endure such things because they have joy. Joy in Jesus. Not joy in my life's working out just how I planned it, thanks. But joy in how God has my life in him that he is glorified in me. Friends, happiness does not depend True happiness does not depend on your circumstance. When the Bible uses happy are those, the word is also blessed as those. When it uses words like joy, it's not like a worldly happiness, a worldly joy, a worldly blessing. No, it's dependent on Jesus. Joy is a mark of the kingdom of the Old Testament. We saw in Isaiah 55, our cross-reading passage. And joy is not shaped by personality. I know some of us, we're not exuberant 
You don't have to be. It's not saying, you know what, you need a better personality. You just need to be more happy. Can't you just like, put a smile in your dial? What's wrong with you? Friends, here's a profound thing we see in the Bible. Because of Jesus, you can have joy even in sorrow. You can have joy even in tears. You can have joy in life and death because of Jesus. How do we know this? For the joy set before him, he endured a cross. And Jesus says of his apostles, as he prays to them, I've given them God's word. God's revealing word. And what does God's word also do for them that Jesus prays for? That they would be sanctified. That they would be sanctified. They'd be set apart. The word sanctified is where we get the word saint from. It means holy or set apart. That they would be set apart from the world. That they'd be in the world on mission, which is where we get the word sent from. The word apostle comes from the word apostolos, which means sent one. The Latin word missio is we get the word mission from. That Jesus is saying to these witnesses of him, and Acts 1 gives us a role description of apostles, it's why we don't have apostles today. If you don't believe me, read Acts 1. But he's sending these apostles into the world. And if they're going to go into the world, into the fire, they're going to need to be set apart and ready for that. And that's what he prays for. Jesus prays, verse 15, I ask you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them. Notice this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. What from the world? Look at this. Keep them what from? In verse 15, the evil one. This prayer here in John 17 has connections to the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. We know it. We, we say it here as a church every Lord's Supper, every month. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you know how that can be translated? And probably is more particular and pointed. Deliver us from the evil one. See, many people think that delivering us from evil just stops at car accidents. Just, just make sure my, my friends and my family don't have a bad thing happen to them today. Or getting sick or failing an exam. Whatever is the latest thing we might fear. Yet, what does Jesus teach us to pray? What is the biggest thing in the world that is going to be on attack? It's the evil one. Do we pray protection from the evil one? The one who actually get to our hearts? Do we pray for this? See, Jesus sees evil as not as annoying... He sees evil as a personal problem for you and me. Evil gets personal because what does evil do? It messes with you. It messes with me. It messes with our hearts, doesn't it? Evil is not out there or over the seas. Evil is here in me and Satan gets personal. Because what does Satan do? He sees the way you're bent out of shape by sin. He sees your personal habits. He sees mine. And what does he do? He pokes and prods. He tempts. He sees our sin as his personal playground to get us to ignore God. And notice, 
The safety of the Christian extends further than the hate of the world. Jesus doesn't just ask that we're taken out of the world. His prayer is that we'd be in the world, not of the world, but in the world, and that we'd be kept from the evil of the world, kept even from the evil one, kept even from the evil of our own hearts. Jesus is asking that we'd be guarded by God, by his sovereign grace, to be kept safe. We can pray this for one another. And as Jesus prays this, notice verse 16. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, verse 18, so I've sent them into the world. Jesus is sending these apostles, apostolos, sent ones. He's sending them into a world of evil. Now, none of this sending and ministry is natural to us, is it? It's not natural to us to want to go into where the badness is. We know we live in a world where there's pressure to conform, a world of wrong. Our reaction is often to go with the flow, to go where it's easier. But think on this. Uh, We often teach our children what is church about. We We want to disciple them well. And our kids have loved um, emergency services. So I've never been a fireman, a policeman, or a paramedic, SES. Never done those things, but our kids love it. And we, one of the things we teach them at church is, yes, it's God's gathered people. We teach them, church is also, it's a rescue team. And church, we are sent into the world where the evil is, to bring the gospel, to bring the light into the darkness, to bring Jesus. Because what do firefighters do when they come to a fire? If my house is burning down and I'm standing outside with a garden hose burnt to a crisp, right? I'm outside, but what are they going to do? Firefighters go into the fire. They go into the fire. That's what they do. What does the church do? We go into the world with the gospel. And so Jesus prays this for his apostles. He prays this for them, that they would be sanctified and sent. He prays that of a personal holiness, which they're going to need, because if you go into the evil world, you are going to need to be set apart. Robert Murray McShane, who was a Presbyterian minister who wrote that Bible reading guide, you may know of it, we've used it in the church, but he said, and others have said, J.C. Ryle, others have said, what, what my church needs most of all from me is my personal holiness. That I would be focused on God, that God, would, Jesus would be big in my life so that Jesus is big in their life, so he sends us into a world where Jesus is not big, where Jesus can be big too. And lastly, Jesus prays then for our church, his church, that we be unified. Have a look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Jesus has moved from his apostles. They're listening to this prayer. They can hear it. He's praying for them. But then in verse 20 to the end of this prayer, he prays for who? For you. Jesus prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for reforming church. He prays for the worldwide church. He prays for his church. 
And as we hear his prayer, we see Jesus' priorities for the church. I mean, Jesus is saving and gathering the church. That's what he's doing at the cross. The cross is not just to save us as individuals to kind of float around and bump into each other occasionally. That's not Christianity. That's not what he's saving us for. No, he saves us to gather us so that we would be together and know one another and love one another. And look at verse 21. How's this going to be expressed? That they, that you, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you give me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is praying that the church would relate like the triune God relates, that we'd be one, unified, that we'd be other person-centered like God is, One God, three persons, totally centered in one another, focused on one another, loving one another. And notice as Jesus prays for unity, he doesn't pray for a unity that we can manufacture. See, what often happens is we think, yeah, we need need unity in the churches. We need to get all the churches together and unified around the world. But that's just organizational unity. Like we're a Presbyterian church, in case you didn't know. And if you just realize that for the first time, you said, what? A a Presbyterian what? I don't know how to spell the word. We're a Presbyterian church, which means we go back in history a long way. The word Presbyterian comes from a Greek New Testament word. It means elders. We are cared for by elders, plurality. We're connected to a denomination, so we are connected to other churches who are like-minded. But when Jesus speaks about unity in the Bible, our big problem, the church's big problem of disunity, is not really going to be in a denomination. Sometimes it happens, but it's not primarily where the everyday, run-of-the-mill disunity comes from. Where does the everyday, relational breakdown, run-of-the-mill disunity happen? Is it happening here between this church and a church in America? Do we need to be more united with some other church somewhere else that we've never met? Is that the issue? Where do we find disunity appear? It's in the local church. If we want to practice unity, we don't manufacture it. We never make the unity. Jesus does at the cross by bringing us together. We're just told to maintain it. But if we're going to maintain that unity and pray for it, pray for it in the local church that you are a part of. Pray that you would get to know people. If you're a member and adherent and you don't know, as you look across this room right now, someone else who's a member and adherent, maybe pray for the courage to go and say hi I noticed that you are part of this church, and I, I am too, and we don't know each other. Could we have coffee this morning together and get to know each other? Pray for that kind of unity. The kind of unity that says, you know, I talk a lot, a lot with Brendan. Every Sunday, I talk a lot with Brendan. Maybe I'll talk with someone else today and form unity. Maintain unity that Jesus gives us in his saving and gathering of the church. Jesus' priority is that we be one. Why does he pray that? Because we're so easily drifting to not be one. Our problem is not disunity between this church and a church in England or China. Our problem is disunity here. That would be where disunity comes. Uh, Someone, I don't know, said something that I didn't quite feel comfortable with or hurt me accidentally. They don't even know about it, but I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to do, I mean, Jesus, he he surely never says, first go and see the person you've got a problem with. He doesn't say that, does he? I think he might in Matthew 18. Jesus speaks about a unity that is a oneness, a unity of love. 
He prays for it. Friends, do these things fill our prayers? Our priorities will be evidenced by how we pray. What we pray for will show what we think really matters. Does it match what Jesus thinks really matters? There's a diagnostic question that we can ask, isn't it? That I can ask of myself. Do my priorities in prayer match these? Are they filled with Jesus' priorities? We have an opportunity before us to pray like this because Jesus first prays like this for us. But notice this, this is not a burden. It's easy to think of prayer as that, isn't it? It's a box I've got to tick or a thing I've got to do. If I just do that or if I use certain theological language in my prayer that other people can hear, they'll know I'm a really good Christian. I really know my stuff. Perhaps if I pray for a long period of time, then God's like, hmm, hmm, long prayers. Now I know you really mean it. Perhaps if I pray in a certain tone or a certain way, if I, if I use certain language, thy, thee, thou, then God really hears me because I'm speaking God's language. Winky face. Perhaps if I pray enough. Friends, Jesus is not showing us a model that is a burden. He's showing us where to go when we are burdened. Where to go when there is a crisis. Go to our Father in heaven who is ready to hear. That's where we have the joy. Jesus speaks about, even in verse 19, having himself set apart for this. Have a look at verse 19. Here is the gospel in John 17. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Look at verse 19. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. What is Jesus praying? For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Do you see what he's saying? He's praying as he goes to the cross. For their sake I consecrate myself. I set myself apart for this end, for their salvation. Jesus is praying to the Father about what's about to happen next. He's praying about Good Friday. He's praying about the moment that the hour has come. His whole life, everything, is put on the line for this. For us. That we also would be sanctified, set apart in this truth that Jesus died for me. He died for you. And if you haven't yet called yourself a Christian, if you're still looking in from the outside, look at this. Jesus, who can pray to the Father, God the Son, the one who is on the inside, always has been, who was and is and is to come, always on the inside. He, Jesus, prays that he be set apart to do what? To go to the cross, to be cast outside. He goes to the cross, he is cast out, so you can come in. He consecrates himself that you may come in. Do you see what he's done for you? 
And this gives us joy inexpressible. I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church. I had a lot to learn. I'm a newcomer, many of us are, but one of the things I've loved and learned is the way in which throughout history, we've said it so many times before, we're in the New City Catechism for Kids talk, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with that beautiful first question that is in so many ways shaped by John's Gospel, shaped by this prayer. Friends, what is the chief purpose of humanity? What is our prayer? That we would glorify God, that he'd be big in our life and enjoy him forever. Let's pray that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, having seen the prayer of Christ for us, knowing he goes to the crisis of the cross for us, Please continue to answer his prayer for us that we would glorify him in our lives, that he would be big in our life, in our week, this day, this Lord's Day, that he would so set us apart that we would be holy and set apart and then sent into a world that needs Jesus too. We know, we just read that part of the world getting that this is true, this is real, as they'll see a unified church. So we pray that we would grow as a unified community of compassion for our world, where Jesus' priorities fill our prayers. Hear our prayer, we pray. Hear our prayer, we now sing. In Jesus' name, amen.